Good morning, my relatives. This is Mark Charles. It is uh, Wednesday, December 6th. I'm sitting down with my second cup of coffee, and I wanted to have a conversation with you about a few items. Uh, but before I begin, let me do what I always do, which is acknowledge I'm speaking to you from what's called Washington, D.C., the land of the Piscataway. I want to honor the Piscataway as the host of the land to where I'm living. I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands. So for those of you who follow me on social media, you'll know I'm a little bit of a foodie, right? I, I typically post, take pictures of my food and I like to, I like to post them. Um, I, I love cooking and I cook most evenings for my family when I'm home. Uh, and over the course of the past several years, I've collected quite a few recipes, many which we kind of modify a bit to adjust for our family, both in the size of the recipe as well as kind of the nutrition content. We often take out some of the salt and some of the sugar um, to make the food a little more healthy. And my goal is always, right, if I, if I can take a meal that my children will eat in a restaurant, like something they, that they'd order in a restaurant, and then I'll make that at home. And I know I've succeeded in cooking it well, when the dish, um, they prefer the dish we make at home compared to what they could get in the restaurant. So we've done that with pizza. We've done that with macaroni and cheese. We've done that with um, a host of other uh, things. We've done it with paninis and other things like that. Um, and and so, yeah, it's, it's just a fun thing to do. And the other day, one of the things my, my daughter does for me, my birthday was late December, late November. And every year for the past four or five years, my daughter has cooked me a uh, cheesecake on my birthday. And I posted this on my social media the other day. This is the picture of this year's cheesecake. She has gotten incredibly good at making cheesecake. And um, the great thing about cheesecake, right, it's so rich. You can't eat it a very big slice. You can't eat too much at a time. And so we'll eat it the day she bakes it for me or even the next day. Usually we let it cool for eight or so hours in the fridge. Um, and then, but we'll still have three quarters or a half of the cheesecake left. And so we'll cut it up into slices and put it in the freezer. And I have a very easy to uh, grab and eat dessert that I often eat throughout the year. In fact, I just finished last year's cheesecake um, in early November of this year. It was in the freezer, um, uh, you know, eating pieces slowly. But I, I had the last slice of last year's cheesecake. It was either late October or early November of this year. So um, now it's full again, and I get to have uh, cheesecake sporadically throughout the year. I'm the only one in the family who really likes cheesecake. Everyone else, they'll eat it, but they're not crazy about it. But I love it. And so all of the extra cheesecake is usually reserved for, or not reserved for me, but I'm the one who eats it. And so occasionally my daughter who makes it for me will eat it with me. But usually it's just me eating the leftovers. And so... It's a good year-round snack um, that I'll eat occasionally. Again, too much cheesecake would not be healthy at all. But anyway, um, now most of you know that I lived in Southern California for a lot of my life. Um, I went to school there at UCLA. I've lived in LA as well as in the Bay Area, San Francisco for a number of years. I probably spent about a decade of my life living in either Southern or Northern California, most of it Southern California. And one of the restaurants that is kind of a staple fast food restaurant local to the area, um, it's a chain, but it's it's mostly in Southern California, is called El Pollo Loco. And it's, you go in there, you can get some grilled chicken, uh, rice and beans and tortillas and a bunch of varieties of salsa. And you almost make these little tacos or burritos right on your little your dish there. And 
It's not amazing food, but it's good food, and it's very Southern California. It's a very common dish there. And every now and then, because my, my wife is also, she grew up in Southern California. We met at UCLA. And so every now and then, we'll get a craving for El Pollo Loco. But we live on the East Coast, and there is no El Pollo Loco near us. And so we can't ever get it. And so typically I would just grill, bake some chicken or grill some chicken and have it with beans and rice and tortillas, but it's not the flavor of El Pollo Loco. So when I got the craving this past week, I actually did some searching online. I'm like, there has to be a recipe for an El Pollo Loco type chicken that I could make. And I found a recipe online. Um, I want to share it with you because, well, let me show you the picture first. So um, this is the, the, the chicken dish I made last night. Um, and this is then when I dish it up on my plate, you see got the rice, the beans, the chicken, um, that's both a, a thigh as well as a, a, a skinless boneless, um, thigh to the side. And then we used some, we cooked up some corn, he heated some corn tortillas and I cooked up some mini flour tortillas as well and not pictured out of the salsas we had and other things we had to put on top of it. But we ate that last night, and again, here's the whole dish of the chicken, and it was, it was good. I actually really enjoyed it. And so, for all of my uh, Southern California followers, I maybe people who are in Southern California, because Southern California people can just go get this wherever they want. Um, the 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 recipe came from a, a, a chef named Sabrina Snyder. Um, she has a website called Dinner Than Dessert. And she had a, resp a, res a recipe. It was called Al Pollo Loco Chicken Marinated in Citrus and Pineapple Juice Overnight for the Perfect Al Pollo Loco Copycat Recipe. <laughs> and so I made it. It, it took um, making the, the, the marinade didn't take real long, but I had to let the chicken marinate for about eight hours. And then I cooked it up in a little bit of a unique way. At first I baked it and then actually cooked it almost like a panini where you cooked it in the pan with another pan on top of it to kind of squash the chicken and heat it and, and kind of put the mar the marinade over it um, as well. Um, it was a bit unique way of cooking it, but it I thought it came out fairly close to what um, we were used to in El Pollo Loco. So I'm going to put this in the chat for you, those of you who are following here and want to want to try an El Pollo Loco copycat recipe. Um uh, this isn't the one we've modified, but I, again, we just usually reduce the salt by a little bit and, um, it calls for pineapple juice. We bought some, uh, pure, uh, organic pineapple juice that had no added sugar to it. So we did that to make it a little bit healthier, but, um, yeah. So anyway, there's something that you can try again. I thought it was pretty tasty. Um, now to jump into a few headlines, and I see Mr. Phil Fox is here. Yat A, Phil, good to see you. Uh, Shantina, Yat A, thanks for joining. You lived in Southern California. Yes, you loved El Pollo Loco. Anyone who's lived in Southern California has tried El Pollo Loco at least once. And it's, it's a good restaurant. It was one of the places when my wife and I lived there after we got married, we would actually eat there. On a, not a, like a weekly basis, but maybe once a month or so, we'd stop, pick up El Pollo Loco on the way home or something after work. Um, and it was it was just a good way to get a not fried food, not a burger, not fried French fries, no, but something a tad bit healthier, but still something you can grab pretty quickly. And that tasted pretty good. So now I want to talk about a few headlines. Um, of course, 
Uh, tonight is, what's this, the fourth, I think, presidential debate. And I haven't even watched the third one yet. I'm trying to gear myself up to watch it. I've been decompressing after my last trips uh, out of town. And so I have it saved on my DVR still, but uh, I need to watch the third one. I also want to watch the fourth one, which is going to happen tonight. And so, um, but I just want to give this uh, out to you. And for those of you who are following, um, there's been a number of people. So, of course, the majority of the presidential race is in the Republican Party. Um, where we have obviously Donald Trump is running, but he's not doing anything with the party. He's just off his own doing his own thing. And then we have these Republican candidates who are running and they've been having debates fairly regularly. Um, and so that's been going on with them. Uh, and this article I just found in AP News, I put it into the chat, but I'm not sure if it showed up or not. Um, it told me the chat got disconnected. So let me try that one more time and see if that works. Uh, just put it into the chat again. This just gives a breakdown of who's running now. And so I'll just, this is a summary of the article. And the Republican Party, obviously, we have Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Asa Hutchinson. Apparently, he has not dropped out yet. He's still in the race, even though he's no longer in the debate. Um, only the, the there's only going to be four candidates in the debates tonight. Donald Trump's obviously skipping it, but Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, and Vivek Ramaswamy are in the debate tonight. Then in the Democratic Party, we have Joe Biden, who is running. Marianne Williamson announced months ago, and Dean Phillips is also running in the Democratic Party. Um, in the independent, our third party category, we have Robert F. Kennedy, Jill Stein, and Cornell West. And if you've been following the headlines, um, you'll see that uh, Liz Cheney is toying with the idea, right? She's doing all the things. Her book just came out, and she's toying with running uh, as a third party candidate um, in this race as well, trying to siphon off some of the um, more moderate Republicans, as well as probably some of the more moderate Democrats. Um, so she's debating. She hasn't announced anything yet, but she's debating kind of a third-party run um, in that race. Um, oh, I just realized it doesn't look like my El Pollo Loco recipe made it into the chat. Let me add that in one more time in case somehow that missed that. And then I'll go back to this. Um, anyway. So, uh, yeah, so that's a, this just an article kind of laying out. Oh, and also it shows who's dropped out. So former Vice President Mike Pence has dropped out. Tim Scott of South Carolina has dropped out. Doug Burgum, um, the radio, uh, uh, radio show host Larry Elder has dropped out. Uh, Perrin Johnson has dropped out. Will Hurd and um, Francis Ceres has all dropped out. So all of these people are, are no longer in the race. Um, but yeah, just kind of an article to keep on top. And then this is just a brief article. I just want to mention this. I said this earlier. These are the candidates who's going to be in the debate tonight um, on the, the GOP debate. And it's a narrowing field there. Um, and so, yeah, so that is also going on. There's one other thing I wanted to share with you, um, and I, I don't. This didn't make major headlines, I don't think, 
but it came across my, uh, uh, as I was searching through the news the other day, um, there's been pressure by the media and the public um, for uh, the House to release the videotapes, the, the, the video footage of January 6th. And Politico had this article the other day, and it, it said uh, Mike Johnson, who's the new Speaker of the House, um, he says the GOP staff is blurring participants' faces in the January 6th tapes to protect them from the Department of Justice. Um, and just just a bit of an article or a blurb from this article, um, and let me bring this up here a minute. It says, Speaker Mike Johnson said Tuesday that his plans to release all security footage from the January 6th attack, attack on the Capitol have been delayed because Republicans are blurring faces to protect participants. We have to blur some of the faces of persons who participate in the events of that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against and be charged by the DOJ. Johnson told reporters on Tuesday, adding that he still wants to release those tapes as quickly as we can. <laughs> There's sometimes you read the headlines and you're just kind of left flabbergasted, right? People attacked the Capitol to overturn an election. Congress members from the Republican Party were literally fearful for their lives, along with other congressional members. And now the Republican Party is going through the footage and blurring the faces of the people who committed that crime to protect them from prosecution from the Department of Justice. I, I don't even know what to say to that, right? It's like, what, how, how can you even pretend you're the party of law and order when people who you're in your party or you're sympathetic to break the law and you literally, literally remove them from accountability in the videotapes? I it I it it's mind-boggling. Absolutely mind-boggling. So anyway, I I want to share that. I I don't even have a response to it. It's just it it boggles my mind. I want to deviate here for a moment, just a second. Um, last night, I had a chance to meet with a group. Um, they had purchased a 10, a 10 book pack of my book study special. And they scheduled the Q&A last night. And uh, I was there, they were from, actually from Portland, Oregon, it was a church up in Portland, Oregon. And I'm so often when I read the headlines and I see the systemic nature of the injustice of what we're facing as a nation, and it gets so overwhelming and you feel so stuck. And one of the things I love, right, is these conversations I get to have, and I'm having them almost at least once a week, 
where people who ordered 10 copies, signed copies of my book, Avant Selling Truths, the book I co-authored with Singh Chandra from my website. And when they order it, I, I allow them to schedule with me a 45-minute virtual Q&A so I can have dialogue with their study about questions they have of the book. And obviously, I wrote the book to highlight some of the systemic injustice. I run around the country teaching about the book and this content. And I've said before, I could almost script for you the questions I get asked in a Q&A directly following one of those presentations, because most of that questions come from a place of trauma or of just shock and people don't know what to do. And I could almost script most of the questions I'm going to get asked. The conversations I live for, the conversations that happen weeks, even months later, after someone has had a chance to digest what I presented. And that's what these Q&As are. These are groups of people, 10 to 15 people sometimes, who have been reading my the book, going through, discussing it, and then we get to have a conversation about questions they have. And I can't even predict how these Q&As go because everyone is so different from the other because the, the participants have had a chance to really wrestle with the content, to get over some of their initial shock, and to really look at some of the deeper issues and the deeper picture. And so if you are at all, if even if you've read on Selling Truths before, um, but if you would like to get some people together to do a QA, and um, a and uh, if you buy 10 signed copies of the book on Selling Truths from my website, um, I will contact you, my assistant will contact you and give you up to a year after the purchase to schedule a Q&A, a virtual Q&A with me. Um, it's a 45-minute Q&A where we can have a deeper discussion about the book. And for those of you who say, well, I want to have a conversation about the book, but I don't have time, I, I don't have 10 people to do the study with, um, there's another option of what you can do, is, which is on my Patreon. If you join my Patreon, even if you just join it for a month, the uh, one of the tiers on my Patreon is called the Ask Questions tier. It's $10 a month. And once a month, I hold a Q&A on my Patreon. It's almost an, uh, an AMA. It's an Ask Me Anything. And people ask questions about my work, about my presentations, about my sermons, about the book, about future projects I'm working on, about am I gonna, what I, am I going to do politically, and so on and so forth. It's just a wide-ranging Q&A. And so even if you just join for one month and you want to join that and you have some questions about the book or something I've said, it's a great place where we can have some dialogue. And so even if you if you don't have 10 friends to do the Q&A and the book study with, but you want to just join a Q&A, my Patreon is really one of the best places and the best the best ways to do that. So, And both of those ways are ways that I continue to support my work. Right? I've intentionally made the choice not to monetize my social media by selling ad ads on them. Sometimes they show ads on my YouTube videos uh, because they, they have the right, YouTube has the right to do that. But I don't benefit from those. I, don't mo I haven't monetized my YouTube channel or my other social media. And so I do that because I want to keep my voice as, as open and as honest and as truthful as possible. And I don't want to have any influence by advertisers over what I do say or don't say. So if you would, if you like what I'm doing, you want to uh, help support the work I'm doing, you can either uh, support it by joining or uh, purchasing one of my books, or you can uh, sign up for my Patreon. And that's another good way to 
to support the work I'm doing and help keep my voice as independent as possible. Um, I see a few other people just jumped on. My father was on earlier. Yeah. Hey, Dad, good to see you. Thanks for joining. Uh, I know you've been getting some snow out in New Mexico. And Aladjay, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Um, uh, thank you for your comments. You're sharing a story about some land return. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I have talked a bit about the land back movement, and I will continue to talk more about that. Um, not in this show, but that is some important things that's happening, but it's also not absolutely the answer to the problem regarding the doctrine of discovery, but thank you. I'll take a look at the article a little bit later. Um, saw my headline, you'll notice the last thing I was going to talk about today was it's called Equal Pay Day. Now, for those of you who don't know, Equal Pay Day is usually celebrated, I think last year it was celebrated on March 15th. And Equal Pay Day is the day into the new year that women have to work to earn the same amount of money that men earned in the previous year. So women earn anywhere between 50 to 80 cents to the dollar on average um, of, a, of the male earner, especially the white male earner. And so March 15th usually represents the day on average where women have to work through um, to including all of last year up through March 15th of the next year to earn the same amount of money that uh, a white male earned in the previous year. Um, these are the same education level, the same job type, right? It's just the paid differential between men and women in our society. And I've acknowledged that, I, I've talked about that, we've highlighted that um, on my Senko of Coffee before. But the other day I was, I was uh, got an email from Native News Online, I subscribed to their kind of their daily news briefs and I got an email from them. And this was last week uh, on November 29. And I'm gonna put this into the chat. The article that they sent was titled today, November 29, 2023, is Native American Women's Equal Pay Day. Here's why it matters. Now, if you think about this, it's not shocking. But I hadn't discussed it in depth. And of course, not only are we a sexist nation, but we're also a racist nation. And we're so racist that even our sexism is racist. And so while March 15th is the average date for the average woman to have to work up through to earn the same as a man in the previous year, when you break that data out by race, it's a much, much different picture. So there's, there's an article I want to share. Um, the, the first one, so I started Googling it. I started Googling uh, uh, equal pay day by race. I started looking specifically for different races. One of the first articles I found was this one. It was in Fortune Magazine, uh, published in 2022. It was titled March 14th, Happy Equal Pay Day, White Women. And the, the article made an assumption I read the article. It made an assumption that March 15th was the average payday for white women. Um, 
Now, that wasn't actually a very accurate assumption. Um, and as I did more searching, I started looking, first of all, for the average uh, payday, equal payday for women based on different races. And what I found, I'm just going to give you some of the dates. So the average equal payday for Asian women, and there's an asterisk by this one, um, and I'll talk about that in a moment, is April 5th. The average equal payday for black women is August 3rd. The average equal payday for Latina women is October 21st. And the average equal payday for Native women is November 30th. Right? So Native women have to work a whole year plus 11 entire months to earn the same amount as a white male in a similar job with similar experience in education. And, right, this is just, this is mind-boggling. And so I want to just talk a little bit about this, this, these dates. So first of all, I, I want to share with you a chart. And I'll, let me bring up this chart on the, uh, on here. This is a chart I found. This was in the Joint Economic Committee by Democrats, um, taken from some census data, and it shows, for those of you listening on the podcast, I'll describe it. It's titled, White Men Earn More Than Women of Any Race. And it's full-time year-round workers for 2020. White men earned an average of $67.6,000. Um, Asian women earned 98% of that, $66,600. Again, there's an asterisk by that. I'm going to come back to that. White women earned 79% at $53,700. Black women earned 63% of that at $42,900. And Hispanic women earned um, 57% at $38,700. Not even on this chart is Native women. And as I said earlier, there's an asterisk next to the, uh, the um, uh, Asian women um, in there. So I want to first of all, I want to address the asterisk that you need to put by for Asian women. And I did some research into this, too. And I found this article, and I'm going to share this in the chat as well. I'll put all of these in the notes for the video as well. This is from a news source called the Ninth News, 19th News. And um, the article is called Why the Wage Gap Differs Among Asian American Women. And basically, it, it showed that depending on how broad you make the category of Asian women, um, Asian women earn really high, if not higher than white men, or they earn some of the lowest levels out there. And this article really tried to show and address that entire gap. And so if you'll see, even on this article here, you can see uh, Taiwanese women earn uh, $1.08 for every white male dollar. Uh, Indian women earn $1.07 for every white male dollar. Uh, Japanese women earn 85 cents, Chinese women earn 83 cents, and it goes down and down. And then when you get down to the bottom, especially when you start looking at um, South Pacific uh, Asian women and Native Hawaiian Native women, you'll see it goes even further down. And the Nepalese women earn, and again, this is in the U.S., earn the lowest at 48 cents. 
Um, and so there's a huge disparity between uh, what is earned within the what we call the Asian American category of women. And so I encourage you to read that article. I don't have time to go all the way into it in depth right now, but I encourage you to read it and look at that. It really was, I found it very helpful to kind of understand some of the disparity that existed within within that chart that I showed. Um, but uh, I... I want to go back and I, I want to just discuss um, the Native women and that issue. And maybe it's because I, I, I'm, I've, I've spent the past few days even trying to understand what am I even thinking in this? Like, why did this hit me so hard emotionally? And I think one of them, one of the reasons is, is right, as a Navajo man, our society is matrilineal, right? Traditionally, it's the women who, it's the woman's hogan, it's the woman who owns the sheep, right? It's the woman who, who, um, the, the, who the, the lineage is passed through, right? There's traditionally a much higher status for women within the Navajo culture. And to see now that our women and some of the strongest women I've met are some of my Navajo grandmothers, right? Unbelievable women. And to see this disparity of literally they have to work 11 months past into the new year to earn what white men earn in a single year. This is not this is comparing similar education, similar background, similar experience, similar jobs. And it, it just, it really hit me hard. And I think probably because I wasn't even aware how late in the game, how late in the year that Native women fell for the equal pay day. And I, I found it very unsettling and, and very even, very even overwhelming. And I've been lamenting it for the past few days, even thinking about how I wanted to talk about it. And the only thing I can say, because what do you do, right? How do you, how do you, this, obviously this is just even one data point in a slew of data points regarding systemic, not only sexism, but racism that exists within our, our nation. And so how do you begin to, to categorize this or to think about what do you do to address it? Because even if you just address this issue, it's not going to fix this, all the other issues. And even if you fix it personally, individually, it's not going to change the systemic nature of the problem. And by the way, if you're wondering where white women are in this, as I said, they're on the chart, white women earn 79 cents to the dollar on average. And so even if we celebrate... Um, equal pay day on May 14th, I would guess the equal pay day for white women would fall probably sometime in um, May, end of May, maybe early June. Um, but yeah, there, it would fall somewhere within that, within that time slot. Maybe. Yeah. And I couldn't, I actually couldn't find data on when, when the equal pay day for white women was, I couldn't find that. Um, but it just, and I was talking with my daughters about that, I, about this issue. And one of the things I said to them 
I, I, my daughter and I were out for a walk the other day and we were talking about equal pay day. And I said, I just learned that day, right? Cause my daughter's a native woman. And I said today, last week was the equal pay day for native women. And I, I said to my daughter, I said, that's why I ran for president, right? One of the goals of my campaign was to remove the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy from our foundations. When we have a constitution that specifically excludes natives, specifically counts Africans as three-fifths of a person, and never mentions women, right? Of course, not only do we have a disparity between the male and female wage, but when you break it out by race, it gets even worse. I mean, this is just what happened. And we're not going to solve this in silos, right? Again, we have to address the foundations. We have to edit the Constitution. We have to fix it at a foundational level. And even that's not going to fix it overnight. But now at least we have a constitutional foundation that doesn't create the disparity at the foundational level. Now we can actually move through with some constitutional strength to begin to address the way this appears in different industries and in different sectors of society and everything else. But right now, when the, when the problem lies in the Constitution, it's almost impossible to fix it unless you fix the Constitution first. And so what this does for me because there's nothing I can do right now to change it, right? There's, I, but it, it just reinforces in me the commitment. And I, I'm, I turned 53 last year, or last month, right? So I, I figure I have 20 years of hardworking years ahead of me yet. And I am not, I have not given up on my vision for a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. I have not given up on my vision for a national truth and conciliation commission. I have not given up on my vision to edit the constitution. I have not given up my vision to create a common memory. And I'm still fairly convinced that the best way to do this, the most efficient way to do this is through possibly another political campaign for president. I'm always searching, is there a better way to do this? Again, the goal of my, even my 2020 campaign was never to be president. It was to enact these changes. And I saw that as one of the best routes to do it. And so even though I'm not running in 2024 and I don't know what's going to happen in 2028, I am constantly strategizing and working and thinking, what do we need to do not to sign a petition about this issue or to raise funds for that issue. What do we need to do? What can I do to continue to move this thing forward so that we can begin to enact this change at a systemic and foundational level? And it just strengthened my resolve to not give up looking for a way to enact this kind of change. I lament that March 15th is the average equal pay day for women. I mourn that. It's a shame 
that our nation has such a disparity. And I lament that when we break it out by race, it is even worse. And it breaks my heart that indigenous women have to work through November 30th to earn the equal payday as men. We have a lot of work to do, my relatives. We're not going to fix this by screaming at each other on Twitter. We're not going to fix this by getting caught up in the identity politics of the Democrats and Republicans. We're going to fix this by committing to working hard. Not to cancel one another, not to demonize the other, but to create common memory. To work towards a vision of a better community. And to acknowledge that these problems exist not in spite of our foundations, but because of them. These are bipartisan values that our nation has been enacting on for centuries. And we need to address them at a foundational, bipartisan, constitutional level. And that's what I'm working on, my relatives. Those are the things that I'm trying to do. I'm going to share one last article. This is just about the Equal Pay Day. Um, it's another article. I welcome you to read this. I'll put all these articles into the show notes um, of this video on my YouTube channel if you want to read any more of those. I also want to share with you a few other things um, that that uh, came out just this past week. I did an interview with InterVarsity Press. They have a Disruptors podcast. And they talked, we talked about my, my work for change and how I use my campaign to stand against empire. And so I want to share this. This is in uh, the IVP podcasters uh, podcast, and this is it on YouTube. It's the, um, it's the video of that podcast on YouTube. And then here is a link to the audio of that podcast, which is the link to the Apple podcast. Um, I also just want to highlight uh, earlier this week, I had a great conversation with Sarah Augustine and Sherry Hostetler here on my second cup of coffee. And we talked about the book that they co-authored, So We and Our Children May Live. And I want to highlight that for you there. If you haven't seen that yet, you can go back and watch that. Um, it's another really good conversation we had. And then actually right after that interview, we jumped onto my Patreon and we did a more in-depth Q&A on my Patreon. If you want to, if you want to join that, that uh, you can join that there too. Anyway, my relatives, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. But the goal as always is to walk in beauty. And the hope is that we will learn how to walk in beauty together. I hope your second cup of coffee is as good as mine. If you have a chance, try the El Pollo Local Copycat Chicken. Have a great day, my relatives. Huck on that.